The very right-wing U.S. Supreme Court is about to rule on a case that could end the U.S. political system based on one person, one vote. Yes, you heard me right. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we're talking with Stephen Donziger. Mr. Donziger is an advocate, a writer, a public speaker on human rights and corporate accountability. He also filed a class action lawsuit against Chevron for dumping 17 and a half million gallons of crude oil in the Ecuadorian rainforest. They won that case. It was a historic judgment, nine and a half billion dollar judgment against Chevron. But then Chevron went on a crusade against Mr. Donziger, resulting in his being disbarred as a lawyer, being arrested, serving time in jail, and finally serving more than two years of home confinement. Stephen Donziger, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Stephen, we reached out to you and wanted to talk with you because you wrote an important article in the Guardian newspaper, the UK newspaper. You're a columnist with that paper. The title of the article was The Most Terrifying Case of All is About to be Heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. We think that's an apt headline. We think it summarizes actually what's at stake with a case that's coming before the Supreme Court. We've been talking about this for the past few months, but I would have to say it's one of the most underreported stories about such a big issue in the U.S. mainstream media. I want to talk to you about why there's been such an absence of media attention. But before we do, let's talk about the case itself. It's Moore versus Harper. The origin of the case, of course, is a gerrymandering case in the state of North Carolina. The state Supreme Court in North Carolina ruled that the gerrymandering scheme of the Republican-dominated state legislature in North Carolina was inherently biased and discriminatory and a violation of democracy. So they said, no, they said, go back to the drawing board, redo the congressional districting map. And the Republicans said, no, we have the Constitution on our side. And they appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And shockingly, the U.S. Supreme Court that, you know, here's so few cases took this case. So let's just talk about your article, why you wrote it and what Moore v. Harper really means. Well, thank you. First of all, I think the implications of Morby Harper are truly frightening. I agree. I don't think it's getting nearly enough attention in the corporate media. Basically, it's a case that would allow the Supreme Court, based on a really obscure provision of the Constitution, which allows state legislatures to regulate time, place, and manner restrictions, like the administrative part of, of elections, to really have total control over the electors that a state would send to the electoral college following a presidential election. In other words, if you sort of understand what's at stake in the context of the last election, when Trump 
after he lost, tried to, you know, browbeat various states, Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, among them, to send slates of fake electors so he could actually win the election despite losing in those states in the popular vote count. If this theory had been in place, there would have been a a legal justification for that to have happened. That is for, you know, what's left of our democracy. And I think our democracy is under attack on a number of fronts, but we still have these votes every four years that, you know, to some degree determine who the president is. It really would have allowed for Trump to steal the election. And what's curious about this is, you know, why did the Supreme Court take the case? You know, a lot of people don't know that we have in the United States a relatively lazy court compared to other Supreme Courts around the world. The court only takes about one out of every hundred cases. The court only rules on about 70 cases every year. Brazil, by contrast, rules on about 100,000 cases, their Supreme Court every year. So just to take a case signals to the world something really important. And in my view, I, I really can't think of a plausible reason why the court would have even taken the case, but for wanting to uphold this awful gerrymandering in North Carolina that would essentially lock in Republican control of that state politically, despite the fact that most people in that state vote Democratic. So I think the implications are enormous. I think like a lot of what's been going on in our society and and in the Supreme Court as of late, you're looking at a huge erosion of democratic rights and freedoms hidden in the esoterica of legal technicalities. The case is not that easy to understand. Some of the issues are technical. Again, uh, you know, relate to very obscure provisions of the Constitution, but ultimately it's really about whether we are going to be able to preserve electoral democracy in the United States. People in the United States believe that they live in a democracy because we've been told we live in a democracy. We learned it in, in school. It's basic to all of the things that our kids learn. And people associate democracy with different points, but sort of fundamental to it is the idea there should be one person, one vote, should determine the outcome of elections. Now, in the United States, because of the existence of the Electoral College, again, as you describe it in the Guardian article, relic, and it's a relic from a system where half the country was, or more than half the country was living with a system of enslaved labor and the the concern of the slave-owning states that they be properly or sufficiently represented in the federal government such that the system of slavery would not be tampered with, you know, even with the Electoral College, still people, you know, think they have one person, one vote. Meaning if in the state of Georgia, for instance, Biden got more votes than Trump, even if it's a few more, if it's more than the opponent, then the electoral votes go to those who got the most vote. Now, I want to put this into context, Stephen, because And I think this speaks to what the right wing's real agenda is here. Since 1988, since the election of George H.W. Bush against Dukakis in 1988, the Republicans have only won the popular vote one time in that whole time period. And that was in 2004 when George W. Bush defeated John Kerry in the popular vote. And he would not have even been standing as the incumbent but for the fact that the Supreme Court stopped the vote count in 2000 in the state of Florida, 
said that there would be irreparable harm to George W. Bush, the Republicans in the country, unless the vote count stopped in Florida. But George W. Bush lost that election by 500,000 votes. So you can make the argument that if it hadn't been for the Supreme Court's intervention in 2000, the Democrats might have won every popular vote since 1988. And yet, of course, we know that there have been Republican presidents because of the Electoral College. But now, with the Moore v. Harper case, if it's up to the state legislatures, and there's 30 of them under the exclusive control of very far right-wing Republican majorities, if they and they alone, not the state constitution, not the state Supreme Court, not the U.S. Supreme Court, but they and they alone determine who the slate of electors is, even if the Republicans lost very large popular vote majorities nationally and statewide, you could still have a Republican victor. I mean, that's actually what the right-wing plan is. And I think it's because they can't win elections anymore on the federal level that they're moving into this extreme negation of what we think and what our kids have been taught is democracy. I agree with the premise in your question. I think this is related to the fact that true democracy, that is, I should say true liberal democracy, democracy has different definitions, but you know, in this country, liberal democracy means one person, one vote. And the person who gets the majority of votes takes office. And as you point out, there's been multiple occasions in our lifetimes, in the last 30, 40 years, where the person who got the most votes at a national level in a presidential election did not take office, largely because of these bizarre relics that exist, like the Electoral College and a constitution written, you know, 250 years ago that frankly is a relic compared to most modern constitutions of civilized nations around the world, you know, but it is our constitution. But even under our Constitution, the idea that the, the Supreme Court could come in and essentially rule in a way that would completely undermine the popular vote at the state level in terms of who the electors are for this electoral college is extraordinary. And I agree. I think it's really, really hard for the elites who want to really control our society, the corporate elites, the fossil fuel industry, the pharmaceutical industry, okay, and others who make enormous profits, they don't want policies in place that many Democratic politicians, as mild as these policies might be, want to implement. They will decrease their profits. They will raise their incredibly low tax rate to something a little more reasonable. And so rather than kind of agree to live in a society that is, you know, somewhat fair, like you might see in some countries in Europe in terms of its tax structure, they just want more and more and more and more. And I, I also think the climate issue is very related to this. You know, the fossil fuel industry is probably the most powerful industry in the United States. When we look at the profits this industry is making right now. You know, Exxon just reported 20 billion of profit in one quarter. OK, Chevron, 12 billion in one quarter. Okay. They're totally taking advantage of the war in Ukraine, and they are gouging American consumers. And I actually believe that if elections were truly free and fair in the United States and gerrymandering did not exist, the fossil fuel industry right now would be subject to a windfall profits tax, as well as a series of other measures designed to transition us to clean energy so we can save the planet. 
And I actually believe this is extremely connected to that industry. If you look at the money that's bankrolling, what I would call this major judicial seizure of power, and in a previous post on my Instagram, I called it a judicial coup. And it really is, because you essentially have six people now in the Supreme Court, think about this, who are making decisions that determine the freedoms that the rest of us can have. That is, six people are determining the degree of freedom that 320 million people in this country can live under. I mean, it's just completely anti-democratic. And the Supreme Court, and we've seen this not just in the Morby Harper case about the independent state legislature theory, but in a whole series of cases over the last 12 to 18 months, the Supreme Court is clearly a political body. It is not a judicial body. And in my opinion, because it's acting politically and not judicially, it needs to be dealt with politically. And measures need to be taken to dilute the process through which justices are appointed, or I should say to modify it. So justices get on who actually uphold the law and don't try to manipulate the law for political purposes, which is what the six ultra conservative members of the Supreme Court are doing. In the Moore v. Harper case, you saw it the other day in the argument over affirmative action. You know, you saw it in the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. You saw it in the decision that completely defanged the EPA's ability to deal with climate change and regulate the industry. So you've seen it in a whole host of decisions. The Supreme Court is on a blitzkrieg right now, okay? Grabbing cases, any case they can, to enact a far-right pro-corporatist agenda that will lock in corporate control of our society for generations. Really, their idea is to do it permanently, even though demographic changes and population changes would almost every four years, if not every four years, elect a Democrat if we truly had free and fair elections. And that's frankly very scary. So, you know, I think our democracy is under assault by the very people, that is judges, whose first duty is to protect it. And I think that's extremely wrong and concerning. And I think the fact the media, you know, the big media outlets really aren't dealing with this is mind boggling to me. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. One of the reasons we've, Stephen, have focused so much on this case is not because we believe that the American democratic system, I could use air quotes over the democratic system, is idyllic, not because we put it up on a pedestal. In fact, it's been a flawed system from the beginning, and the expansion of basic democratic rights has been the consequence of very hard-fought struggles. I mean, our grandparents and their neighbors fought and died, many died, to expand democracy. I mean, the 24th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which was passed only in 1964, was the first time that poll taxes were eliminated and made illegal. And that was only for federal elections. It took the Supreme Court until 1966, not so long ago, to outlaw the use of poll taxes in state elections. And these poll taxes were designed basically to disenfranchise black and low-income workers from participation. And you have a system of gerrymandering even now, like in the case, the case that's coming before the Supreme Court, the Alabama case. I mean, 33% of the people in Alabama are African-American. And yet there's only one black congressperson out of seven from the state of 
Alabama because of racist gerrymandering. And now the Supreme Court wants to hear that. They want to be able to say, look, it's these racist right-wing state legislatures that are the ultimate determinant about how elections are determined at the state level and at the federal level. So it's not a perfect democracy by any means, but what's happening with Moore v. Harper is an effort to institutionalize a system whereby right-wing state legislatures permanently get to decide which slate of electors go to the electoral college for the final certification of the federal election. That's why this is important. This would be, this would be a sea change because, as you mentioned, 83% of the country is urban, meaning not really prone to a right-wing program, a pro-corporate program. They don't want to vote for these things. The only way the corporate establishment, the ruling class, can retain its sort of privilege and power in the face of these demographic shifts is to change the way government is formed. And the way government is formed would be an existential shift in American politics. Even though the existing democracy is flawed, this would be something that could institutionalize a permanent right-wing government, regardless of how people vote. I think that's true. And I think Really, the goal is to lock in authoritarian, anti-democratic, pro-corporate power for generations, if not permanently. But to do it in a way that people have a hard time noticing it. You know, again, as I said earlier, a lot of this stuff is hidden in things like these esoteric laws and clauses in the Constitution dealing with time, place, and manner restrictions on elections. I mean, who would think that that could be used to essentially get rid of all judicial oversight of what state legislatures do with regard to gerrymandering, for example, which is the issue that, that's in play in the Morby Harper case out of North Carolina. I mean, basically, they're going to potentially render all state Supreme Courts, all 50 state Supreme Courts, powerless to stop an assault by a Republican-controlled state legislature on democracy, decisions by Republican legislatures to basically award electors to the losing presidential candidate, regardless of the popular vote. And if that were to happen, as Trump tried to get it to happen, I mean, this is not theoretical, okay? Let me be clear. This already happened in the last election where Trump tried this little scheme. And now this thing needs more legal, a legal theory to back it up. And that's what this case offers the Supreme Court. Now, it doesn't mean if they rule in the way that I think they're going to rule, the person who won the popular vote is necessarily going to have the election stolen from him or her, but it does provide legal cover for that to happen. It makes it much more likely that it will happen. And a lot, there's a lot of these techniques that I've seen in my own personal experience as a lawyer and my work as an environmental justice lawyer against Chevron where attacks on activists, attacks on democracy are taking place and they try to hide it in technicalities, knowing that most people are not, you know, well-schooled enough in the law to really notice it. So I'm writing about it, you know. I mean, I'm actually doing another column for The Guardian right now on what's going on at the state legislature level because the mechanics of this, the sausage-making of this scheme it's really important people understand how it works, and it's really important that it be called out. And it's really an extraordinarily sophisticated, okay, 
far-reaching plan that has existed, as you point out, for decades. And it's culminating right now with control of the Supreme Court, you know, by really what I would call extremist right-wing judges, six of them. Right. And, and if we think about the impact, Stephen, of the stolen 2000 election, that was, again, Bush lost, George W. Bush lost by 500,000 votes. The Supreme Court stopped the vote count in Florida. George W. Bush would have lost Florida, too, if the votes had been fully counted, meaning he would have lost the popular vote and the Electoral College vote. But the Supreme Court stopped the vote. So by a margin of 147 votes, Bush took the state of Florida after the vote count was stopped. And that was a five to four decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, as a consequence, George W. Bush becomes president because he's an incumbent. He is reelected in 2004. That was his big advantage. He would not have been reelected in 2004. So you had George W. Bush able to appoint John Roberts and Alito. And Alito was the author of the Dobbs decision, eviscerating, extinguishing the rights of women to control their own bodies and have an abortion, eviscerating a right that was wildly popular, even had majority support among Republican voters and certainly Republican women. And yet they got rid of it. They got rid of abortion rights as a fundamental right. Then you have Trump, who was able to put in three right-wing Supreme Court justices. By the way, Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett were part of that Republican mob that was sent to Florida in 2000, where they were intimidating, trying to intimidate election officials who were counting the vote in Florida, that whole big operation. So Kavanaugh is rewarded later. Amy Coney Barrett rewarded later. These are Republican political hacks, right-wing hacks. So you have now six individuals, those five, and then Clarence Thomas, of course, who came earlier. So six individuals now are going to determine whether or not we have a system of one person, one vote. Four of those individuals so far mm -hmm. have already said that they support some version of the independent state legislature theory, four of them. And that means Amy Coney Barrett, who was Trump's last nominee, will perhaps be the deciding vote about independent state legislature theory. So here we are in the sort of the weeds, the woods. People are not paying attention. They don't know. If you're not a lawyer, you don't understand legalese, first of all. And then, all, as you're saying, Stephen, all of the technical issues that are confusing. But these individuals are going to determine whether or not the existing political system whereby at least the electoral college vote in a particular state is determined by one person, one vote. Now, the way it will happen will be that some parts of the state legislature and the state political machinery will say, we have a dispute here about what votes are legitimate and what are not. And that was the lead up to January 6th. January 6th, I think, is going to, we're going to remember January 6th as a dress rehearsal People thought it was an anomaly, it was something extraordinary. Yes, it was, but maybe as we look back at history in a retrospective way, we'll see January 6th is in many ways a dress rehearsal for if the mob couldn't do it, couldn't adequately disperse Congress and decertify an election, the Supreme Court, these six individuals can say state legislatures will do it because if they say there's a dispute, if there was, quote, fraud, the state legislatures and they alone 
will be the determiners of whether this or that electoral slate is the valid slate for their state. That means, in fact, that the January 6th will be a precursor. It will be the storm before the storm. Go ahead. Well, first of all, a couple of points. One is five out of the six individuals on the Supreme Court were appointed by presidents who did not win the popular vote. Let's be clear about that. The only one of the six who was not was Clarence Thomas, appointed by George Bush, the father. Everyone else, you know, including Roberts, Alito, Coney Barrett, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, were all appointed by either Trump or George Bush, the son, as a result of winning elections where they did not win the popular vote, at least in terms of Bush's case originally. So I think it's important to point out that the the results of some of the anti-democratic forces in our country are have created this current court that is now deepening what I would say are anti-democratic decisions. You know, and I think that people need to understand that we, you know, we don't have presidents in this country who reflect the popular will because of these systems that are being locked in, you know, by courts. And I'll say one other thing. You know, if the Supreme Court validates the independent state legislature theory, that is, gives state legislatures the right to send their own slates of electors to the Electoral College, given that 30 of our 50 states, the legislatures are controlled right now by Republicans, and it's not just normal Republicans, as we used to know, it's, for the most part, Trump-controlled Republicans, okay, Trumpists, we have a serious problem. Because the gerrymandering at the state legislature level in those states and others, I think, has locked in Republican control of state legislatures. That is the individual legislatures that under the Supreme Court's likely ruling will be making the decisions on what electors are set up. So, again, as I pointed out, this is sophisticated stuff. You know, you need to put in place various controls in various local and state levels for it all to work, for the control to actually take place and to make it sort of look like it's all normal. You know, that's why there's been so much Republican focus on electing, you know, pro-Trump election deniers to secretary of state positions in key swing states, to attorney general positions in key swing states, because they need all these people on board to actually execute a policy where the loser in a presidential election can still take office. And like, let's project out to 2024. Let's say Trump runs and he loses again to the Democratic candidate, you know, by a small margin. And the Supreme Court rules in a way that validates the independent state legislature theory. It's all set up to happen and to happen legally, legally, legally. Okay, what I mean by legally is whenever these anti-democratic things get implemented in a society, and you saw, you've seen this in a lot of countries, including Nazi Germany, like the Nazis were meticulous about making everything legal as they consolidated power in obviously the most anti-democratic, fascist way possible resulting in the deaths of millions of people, okay? Everything was legal. They passed laws. They issued executive orders. They crossed T's. They dotted I's. You know, when Nazi conglomerates would basically steal Jewish businesses, they always had a contract 
where they paid a little bit of money, 90% less than what the business might've been worth, but they paid something to make it all look legal. And you're seeing that same mechanism take place now in the United States where this really judicial provoked coup, which is really what it is, to undermine democracy looks legal. So I would really go back to what the great lawyer Bill Kunstler said in a speech that I posted on my Instagram and Twitter. I posted it twice. It's a powerful speech months ago. Look for it. But he made a speech where he basically talked about the psychological impact of calling something legal. You know, for example, I went to jail. I had a trial. It was, in my opinion, a farce. I had no jury. I was held in contempt of court for protecting indigenous peoples in Ecuador against Chevron. I spent almost three years in detention. And it had the imprimatur of a, of a court because an extremely biased pro-Chevron judge implemented this whole scheme to detain me. It was legal. And I can't tell you the number of people were like, but I mean, you know, it happened, a court approved it. You must have done something wrong. And I'm like, no, I didn't. The court did something wrong and they're calling it legal. And it's the same principle. To call something legal has a powerful psychological impact. I am mm -hmm. urging people, just because it's legal doesn't mean you can't question it. Doesn't mean you can't be skeptical of it. And most importantly, it doesn't mean it's right. And it doesn't mean it is legal if you define legal as some reasonable interpretation of the law or the Constitution, because it's not reasonable, in my opinion. Okay, so the whole strategy is heavily predicated on courts, because without the imprimatur of courts, which most Americans innately believe are legitimate and fair, okay, this can't happen. It can't take place. So we need to start questioning our courts, questioning our judges, as you do, you've been doing on the show and I've been doing, and understanding that they're not really fulfilling their ethical duty to faithfully interpret the law and the Constitution, and they're not upholding their ethical duty to be fair. They are turning their institutions, at least the Supreme Court level, but you're seeing this elements of it in our federal appellate courts, and in our federal trial courts, they're turning these institutions into political bodies, carrying out what I would call an extremist right-wing pro-corporate political agenda. I experienced it firsthand in my case, but that's just like a little thing compared to the big picture of what we're talking about today. But it is all connected in my view. Stephen, as we, as we start to move towards the end here, I want to I help, again, frame for the audience the significance and importance of this Gorsuch, who is one of the six Supreme Court justices, right wing, he had a concurring opinion in the 2020 disputed, you know, the Trump efforts, the Wisconsin election case. He had a concurring opinion. And in his concurring opinion, he wrote, quote, the Constitution provides that state legislatures, not federal judges, not state judges, not state governors, not other state officials, bear primary responsibility for setting election rules. Now that's Gorsuch. In order for a case to come to the Supreme Court, at least four of the nine justices have to agree that they want to hear it. And you have, as I mentioned, four of the six are on record for supporting the some version of the independent state legislature theory. Gorsuch obviously is one of them. So we have a situation where this court is poised to act. 
And I believe also, by the way, just for our audience, in the disputed 2000 election, when the Supreme Court by a five to four margin voted to stop the election count in Florida, the majority wrote the individual citizen has no federal constitutional right to vote for electors for the president of the United States. That's in the five to four decision, Bush versus Gore in 2000. Again, a precursor vote because here's the judges and these right-wing judges saying, look, there's nothing in the Constitution that says you have a right to vote for electors. And that's true, Stephen. If you look at the Constitution, voting is barely mentioned. Democracy is never mentioned. George Washington, who we believe was the great leader of democracy, when he was elected the first president in 1792, he won the vote unanimously. And of the 15 states, because Vermont and Kentucky had been added as states in addition to the 13 colonies, six of the 15 states didn't have any popular vote whatsoever. It was chosen by the state legislatures. In the Dobbs decision eviscerating abortion rights, basically Alito's decision was, look, if it's not in the original constitution or in a subsequent amendment to the constitution, it's not a right. It's like something that can be taken away. Roe v. Wade was one of those. So we have this reversion to the 1787 Constitution by right-wing judges who are not functioning in 1787. We are in 2022, and corporate America, and as you mentioned, the fossil fuel industry in particular, feels threatened by actual popular democracy or a true democracy. And so they've decided they want to end it. And if we're all asleep, if we're not paying attention, if we think it's too boring, or if we're not lawyers and we don't know legalese, then we become quiet and passive, just as we were, unfortunately, too many of us before the Dobbs decision. And there can be fundamental shifts and changes in politics that will affect people and society for generations to come. I think the stakes could not be higher. I agree. And, you know, getting back to your point about the Bush v. Gore decision in 2000, I mean, that in my lifetime, you know, as an attorney is, in, in my view, where the Supreme Court first really went off the rails. Alan Dershowitz, of all people, wrote an excellent analysis of that decision in a book, I forget the name of it, that really captured how completely political that decision was. I mean, they even admitted it by saying in the decision that this has no precedential value, okay? But what it did do, as you point out, is it installed as president someone who governed largely in service to that pro-corporate right-wing agenda, appointed Roberts, appointed Alito. He might not have had those appointments had this judicial-backed electoral coup not happened in 2000. And they laid the groundwork for everything we're seeing today, you know, including the Citizens United decision, which John Roberts led, which unlocked literally billions of dollars of corporate money to flood into our political system to control our institutions. And, you know, I've been very critical of the New York Times, but they did an excellent story on Leonard Leo, who's become like the point person, former president of the Federalist Society, which is the pipeline to put all these right-wing judges on the bench. And how, you know, there was one industrialist who literally just left a $1.6 billion fortune to Leonard's various organizations to continue to carry out this agenda, which is largely hidden from the American people, and it gets virtually no attention from the big media outlets. But, you know, this is an effort, again, to control our institutions, to control our society, to control whether we can be free as people. 
And it's happening in the most efficient way possible, which is, you know, if you were to look at, well, how do I actually take control of a society and make it look like it's not what I'm doing? Okay, well, go to the Supreme Court. All you need to do is to control five of nine justices and you can implement massive policy changes that undermine democracy in service of corporate profit and some other interests without people knowing about it and with legal cover. So, you know, that's what they did, among other things, is they figured out a way to control the politics so the appointments of the court could be controlled by presidents who did not win the popular vote. And now five of the six people who are carrying out this extremist agenda were appointed by presidents who did not win the popular vote. We have a serious problem. And it all, a lot of it started with the Bush v. Gore decision, which is just completely had no justification in the law. And that's, in my mind, is when the Supreme Court really became a blatantly political body around the issues we're talking about on this show. I believe, Stephen, that the right-wing attempts to basically end democracy as we know it, and again, I'll use air quotes about democracy, not a perfect system by any means, but negate the existing system to create a permanent right-wing government. I believe that it will, or could very possibly lead to a political crisis in society, because I think the 83% of the people who live in urban areas who aren't right-wing don't want the right-wing program will rebel once they become aware of what's happening. It will become a point of civil strife. It'll become a point of social strife. I think this moment is pregnant with all of those possibilities. And at the same time, I think that we have to sort of remember that in history, there have been other times like the 1857 Dred Scott decision where a right-wing pro-slavery Supreme Court made decisions to expand slavery to the West and expand slavery to the North. In other words, a Supreme Court right-wing overreach that had the opposite impact, such that eight years later, the system of slavery that looked like it would be forever in America, there was no strong abolitionist movement on the verge of toppling slavery. But eight years later, indeed, it was, you know, at least formally and legally toppled. I think we're at one of those moments. I don't mean to be hyperbolic, but I believe this effort to sabotage, to take away the idea that one person, one vote, even at the electoral college level, if it goes through in 2024, will lead to a, a social crisis and a social confrontation, the outcome of which none of us know. But of course, those who believe in progress and believe in democracy need to be politically prepared. Anyway, I'll let you have the last word. Well, you know, maybe you're right, maybe you're not. People need to learn about these issues and act on them. I do agree that citizen action, citizen organizing is probably the only way to preserve the, our liberal democracy or what's left of it in the United States. We cannot rely on the courts anymore, at least not for a long time, given the, you know, the control of the Federalist Society over so much of our federal court system. You know, so we'll see how it plays out. I mean, there's a reason I'm on your show, no disrespect, and I'm not on CNN or NBC or ABC. You know, I don't get invited on those shows because they don't really know what to make of this and they don't really know how to play this in terms of all their, you know, advertisers. So, you know, we need to get the word out. Independent media outlets like Breakthrough News are vitally important in our society. Thank you, by the way, for what you do and for having me on. 
But we need to, you know, really utilize all the space we have in our society online, on social media, on independent news outlets to really spread the word and really explain some of the nuance of how they are implementing a judicial coup in plain sight that they hope nobody will notice. So that's why I'm speaking out about this. And I would urge others to spread the word. Stephen, how can people find you or follow you? Yeah, so I'm still, you know, engaged with in this titanic fight against Chevron over justice for indigenous peoples in the Amazon. I recently ended an almost three year period of home detention in prison for, I believe, were unfounded charges on a misdemeanor contempt. So I'm in New York. I'm still raising funds to help support the people of Ecuador, enforce their judgment against Chevron so they can clean up their polluted lands. You can go to my website. It's called freedonziger.com, F-R-E-E-D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R. And we're raising funds so I can pay my legal expenses to try to get my passport back, my law license, to protect myself from Chevron's ongoing attacks and really to help the people of Ecuador kind of refocus their energies and try to get their judgment in force so they can clean up their ancestral lands. Again, it's it's freedonziger.com. By the way, there's a donate button. If you can help, great. But more importantly, get on the site, learn more about the case. Give us your email and you'll get you know our letters that come out a couple of times a month explaining what's going on with our case. Great. Stephen Donziger, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.